Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Welcome back, Hebrew Congregation of Houston, episode 132. Episode 132, it is Black History Month. So uh, we know we celebrate it every day, but it's Black, Black, Black History Month, I guess, this month in the in the United States. So that's pretty funny. But uh, we're going to have uh, everyone get on and give a little piece about our Black History Month. So we'll go ahead and get started, and we will start with Minister Griff, if you can go ahead and take it over. Absolutely. Thank you for passing that over, Sister Easter. Um, I wanted to start today because uh, I'm going to do a little bit, just a, a quick biography and some of the highlights of one of my favorite historians. Uh, I was trained as a historian. Uh, I got my my um, bachelor's in history. Um, and so this is somebody that I really admire, a fellow educator. Uh, and uh, just so has it, he's the father of Black history. And so I just wanted to talk a little bit about Carter G. Woodson, uh, kind of who he was, his journey, and then highlight a few things that um, maybe you didn't know, um, but then also talk about kind of what his vision was for Black History Month and whether we are or are living that out today. So with that said, um, I'm just gonna keep the screen on me and I'll just kind of read through his biography. Um, and so uh, to go ahead and start here, let me go to my notes. Uh, so Dr. Carter G. Woodson, first and foremost, uh, who was he? He was born in 1875. And uh, he was born to parents, uh, his parents were, well, he was born in New Canton, Virginia. So he was born in New Canton, Virginia on December 19th, 1875, to Anna Eliza Riddle Woodson and James Woodson. He was the fourth of seven children. Uh, he worked as a sharecropper. His parents were actually enslaved um, and then, you know, uh, got to the point where they were sharecroppers made out of slavery in the Reconstruction era. Um, but he worked as a sharecropper and also as a miner to help his family uh, because they they weren't that well off coming out of that situation. Um, so he began his high school in his late teens and proved to be an excellent student, completing a four year course of study in less than two years. And so he didn't have the chance to go to high school, you know, starting at 14, 15, as it's normalized today. Um, but he did end up getting his high school degree in two years because uh, he, he was a very intelligent man. Uh, OK, so let's talk about who Carter G. Woodson was and kind of what he is known for. So, again, he graduated in his early 20s from high school. And then after he graduated, he um, attended Berea College in Kentucky. Uh, after he attended Berea College in Kentucky, he worked for the U.S. government as an education superintendent in the Philippines. So he got shipped over to the Philippines, worked over there as a superintendent. He undertook more travel before returning stateside to continue his studies. He earned his bachelor's and master's degree from the University of Chicago. Uh, you got to imagine that this is in the early uh, 19, at the turn of the century, turn of the 20th century. And so for him to have earned a, a bachelor's and a master's was very um, very rare at that time, but it shows how persistent he was and how much he cared about education. He also went on to receive a doctorate from Harvard University in 1912. So he became just the second African-American to earn a PhD from Harvard. Anyone know who the first was? Quick Black history fact question. Anybody know who the first to earn their doctor, first Black man to earn their doctorate degree from Harvard? You all know his name, but do you know who it is? Was it Dubois? It was. It was Dubois. He was the first to earn his um his his uh, doctors from Harvard, and then uh, Dr. Carter G. Woodson was the second. So he got a Harvard education in 1912. I mean, imagine the racism. Imagine the 
the stuff he went through to get that degree. Um, and so after finish his, finishing his education, uh, he dedicated himself to the field of African-American history. At that time, there was no field of African-American history. And so this is why he's called the father of Black history, because he was the one, uh, you know, while he was at Harvard, he experienced uh, a professor. And this was that, you know, Harvard is was a forward, a forward thinking institution of that day. And he experienced professors saying that the Negro had no history. Um, that's what was being taught at Harvard. And so him knowing much better than that, uh, he decided to take it upon himself uh, to be the father of Black history and to start to really elevate uh, Black folks throughout throughout history, especially American history. Okay, so in 1915, three years after graduating, he helped found the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, later named the Association for the Study of African American Life and History. So, uh, you know, to, uh, to any of my college day students watching this, uh, any of these program, I think I froze there for a second. Uh, any of you who have an African American studies program, it's all attributed back to Dr. Carter G. Woodson. He is the father of every university's African American studies program, going down to high school. If you have, I mean, it all comes from him. He's the one who organized it. Not to say that, of course, our history was there, but he's the one who organized it, put it together, and made it so that it is a field of study today. So I benefited a lot. My degree was in uh, history, but I had a specialization in both early Christianity and African American history. And so I owe a lot of my degree uh, to Carter to Dr. Carter Woodson. He then uh, helped establish the scholarly publication, the Journal of Negro History in 1916, and he helped teachers with African American studies. He created the Negro History Bulletin in 1937, which was one of his biggest contributions uh, was a Negro History Bulletin, because that is where folks started to understand what was going on. I started to understand that there was this, this uh, person who was uh, elevating our history and making it so that it was accessible to be taught around the nation. And so that was where it kind of really took off uh, was with that bulletin that he would publish. Uh, he also formed the African-American owned Associated Publishers Press in 1921. Um, outside of his publishing pursuits, he held down several positions in academia. He served as, he was a lifelong educator, as you can probably tell from just his accomplishments, but uh, he served as principal of the Armstrong Manual Training School in Washington, D.C., before becoming a dean at Howard University and the West Virginia, West Virginia College Institute. Uh, so he was one of, he was a dean at Howard, and he held many other principal principalships um, as far as just being an educator. Why I love my first exposure to Dr. Carter G. Woodson and why I love him so much was after I read The Miseducation of the Negro, uh, one of his most famous publications, uh, just an excellent publication to talk about. And you know what's crazy is I, I probably read that for the first time in college, but I read it again um, probably about four years ago, and it struck me as how many of the themes in that book still persist today. I mean, he wrote that book in, uh, let's see, in 1933, and here we are almost 100 years later, 90 years later, and these things are still persisting today. And so let me pause his biography for a second and just kind of pick up on just a few of the major themes in that book. Uh, so the miseducation of the of the Negro, of course, that's where you get also one of my favorite albums, The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. She uh, titled that after uh, The Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson. Um, but the thesis of the book is that Black people of his day were being culturally indoctrinated rather than taught in American schools. This conditioning, he claimed, caused Black people to become dependent and to seek out inferior places in the greater society of which they are a part. He challenges his readers to become uh, auto, autodidacts and to do for themselves regardless of what they were taught. And so this idea of they were being culturally indoctrinated, I mean, oh my goodness, Rabbi, I used to speak about this a lot. 
uh, this indoctrination that we continue to go through to today, whether it be through Christianity, Western Christianity, whether it be through our school systems. One thing you always hear me say is um, our schools, I mean, they're just indoctrinating machines, even whether it's good or bad as far as the subject matter. If you're not presenting both sides of the argument, if you're not presenting all sides, allowing students to make come to a conclusion, then it's indoctrination, right? So whether it comes down to the Big Bang Theory, uh, the theory of evolution, uh, you know, all these different things that we're only getting one side of the picture and not getting the whole side, well, that's clear indoctrination. Um, and a lot of these theories, such as evolution, have racist uh, roots, and we don't even know it, that we got Black educators, white educators, whoever is still kind of propagating this stuff. And so he was saying this back in 1933, that we were being indoctrinated by our education, um, and we got to kind of get away from that and start to understand our own history and understand how to how to teach and how to learn in a way that was elevating our voices throughout history. Um, and so, you know, some of the chapters in that book, The Seed of the, the, seed of the Trouble, uh, he talks about how this indoctrinating kind of started and uh, this idea of, quote unquote, a good Negro. You got to be that in order to become successful, uh, which, again, you still see in a lot of ways today. Uh, then he goes into how we missed the mark. He just goes through. Um, and one of the big things he talks about is in Chapter 4, education under outside control. Some you'll hear me talk a lot about um, is that our education, and you've heard, I know Rabbi, you said this as well, is that, you know, we're POWs here in this nation, yet we allow the people who have, uh, and, and who have captured us, who have oppressed us to then educate our children. Um, and it's not even whether it's white versus black, because at this point, the system is so deep that a lot of black folks, you know, and I, I ran into this my, as an educator myself, um, if you're not very intentional at dismantling these systems of oppression, if you're not very intentional at uh, uh, making sure that you're not carrying on some of these systems that are oppressive, then you can be black, Hispanic, whatever, and, and you'll be doing the same thing uh, that the oppressor is doing. So you have to be very intentional in our society with these racist systems um, to make sure that you're not carrying on this indoctrination or this idea of inferiority that's been passed down through the system and been uh, indoctrinated into our children. And so he was saying this back in 1933. We got to get it back under our control. Uh, you know, we got to we got to be able to teach our kids and not just hand them over to the education system. Uh, one thing, one other thing he talked about was how the educated Negro leaves the masses. How a lot of times the educated Negro uh, doesn't want to come back and help his community. Rather, he he wants to try to fit into uh, the white community or uh, the Western community, and how that hurts the entire community because. At the end of the day, uh, that person should be coming back to the community, coming to help and coming to educate. But instead, they're so, uh, he said, they almost get disgusted by their community and want, you know, uh, to fit in into this more culturally, um, to this different kind of culture and this different kind of indoctrination. And so uh, he was going in that, going into that back in the 1930s. Uh, he goes through a lot of different topics in the book. I won't go through all of them, um, but, you know, he was, I mean, you can call him a prophet. You can call him, uh, you know, whatever you want to call him, but he has such deep insights on the condition of the of the Negro back in that day um, that continues to, and it, you know, it's kind of sad that it continues to prevail even to today, um, but it is what it is here in America. Uh, other books that he wrote were A Century of Negro Migrations. He talked about, again, he was a historian, so he talked about migration patterns back in 1918. Another uh, very influential book that I also read was History of the Negro Church, where he goes and talks about the kind of the roots and the indoctrination happening in the Negro church. Um, and he has many other uh, many other books he wrote as well. Uh, so 
again, he is the father of Black History Month, not just Black History. And so let's talk about that for one second. So Woodson lobbied schools and organizations to participate in a special program to encourage the study of African-American history, which began in February of 1926 with, with Negro History Week. And so he started out with Negro History Week, um, just saying that, and he had an organization, uh, let me see if I can find, he had an organization that he worked with that uh, really went in and uh, kind of propagated that throughout the country. But he started with Negro History Week and Woodson's vision, and so let's talk about this for a second. His vision was not to just have a week or to just have a month, right? That's the, the we are still in the precursors of his vision. His vision was to start with a week and then extend it to two weeks, extend it to three weeks, extend it to a month, and then get to the point where uh, there's no need for Black History Month because it's so ingrained in American history, understood that Black history is American history. Um, and so we are still, you know, I do appreciate Black History Month uh, for the fact that, you know, we do have this chance to sit back and talk about different things and to celebrate accomplishments. Um, but we have a long way, way to go and get to the point where uh, Black history is American history, right? There shouldn't be a separation of Black History Month. In every curriculum, we should have Black history laced throughout the curriculum, showing all the achievements and showing all the contributions. Um, and so we're still kind of lagging behind. And I mean, you see it, uh, you know, looking at the TV or whatever, that a lot of this is taken promotionally now. And folks are kind of hopping on this promotional bandwagons during Black History Month to kind of show their solidarity and things like that. Um, but that shouldn't be necessary. It should be such a focus on Black folks as Americans and our history being the same as it being tied into American history that it shouldn't be a need um, for Black History Month. But uh, and, you know, even thinking about, I'm just kind of, kind of digress here for a second. Even thinking about, I've been watching the previews and the sports talk radios about the Super Bowl, and the big thing is like, oh, this is the first time that two black quarterbacks are going to play in the Super Bowl. Um, you know, it's 2023, and we're still talking about first for African Americans. Uh, you know, while I do appreciate, uh, I do appreciate that being noticed and recognized. In the same breath. It, like that being noticed and recognized again shows that the progress isn't as far as we think it is. You know, uh, Kamala Harris being the first uh, black VP and all this stuff, uh, Barack Obama being the first black president, like all these things are like, okay, great achievements. And it shows how far we still have to go um, because it should get to a world where it shouldn't have to be, oh, the first, the first. Rather, you know, it should be, it should be measured amongst everyone, not just kind of amongst being the first. Uh, thinking about Patrick Mahomes as a quarterback, he is the youngest to do so many things. He's the youngest to uh, reach so many Super Bowls. He's youngest to reach so many pass yards. He's the youngest for so many different things. But yeah, his celebration right now is being, you know, one of the two, uh, uh, the first of one of the two black quarterbacks playing Super Bowl against each other. Where it's like his his accomplishments his accomplishments go beyond white quarterbacks, black quarterbacks, everybody. Um, but again, it's kind of like being pigeonholed uh, because of our race. And so, uh, so yeah, so let me get back to a little bit of the biography here. So his whole idea was to go from Black History Week to Black History Month to eventually get to the point where um, it was just so ingrained in, in, in American history that there was no need for a Black History Month. Um, and that's one thing that I say to schools a lot when, you know, when I'm part of an organization is that we really, should, especially in the school, we should not need to celebrate Black History Month. If we're doing right by our Black students, we're doing right by the population we serve, then in every English class, every day, Black students should see themselves. In every math class, every day, 
black students should see themselves. In every history class, every day, every science class, black students should see themselves, see their accomplishments throughout history and be able to uh, celebrate that. And so we still got a long ways to go on that. Um, Dr. Carter Woodson died on April 3rd, 1950, a respected and honored figure who received accolades for his vision. His legacy continues on with Black History Month, uh, being a national cultural force recognized by a variety of different formats. Um, but again, you know, we want to eventually get to the point where uh, there's no need to have uh, Black History Month or there's no need to have necessarily African-American history as a separate thing. Uh, this is all American history and is so, you know, integral to American history, the contributions that were made that in every history book, it should be tied directly in. Another fun fact is something that I kind of made mistakes on earlier in life is I always thought, oh, of course they give us the shortest month as Black History Month, February. Does anyone know, actually Carter, Dr. Carter G. Woodson is the one who chose February as Black History Month. Does anyone know why he chose February as Black History Month? Anybody ever heard that fact? Why did he choose February? So, do you have something, Rabbi? Oh, I did. I did read that, but I I forgot. Yeah. So is it, the is, it shows, Luther, is it Martin Luther King birthday month? Is that what it is? Uh, not quite. His his January, but close. Sister Easter. Nicole, so hold on, Nicole saying, "What is it?" It is the shortest month in the in the calendar, and it's the twenty eighth. It's the last day. It's only twenty eight days in February. It's the shortest month. But he said, "Why did they choose?" The, the February for Black History Month. <laughs> she said because it's the shortest month, but I thought it was. And that's about. I, was... yeah, I can't remember, but I had been told also. It's Martin Luther King's birthday, but I don't, I don't know. I always thought because it was the shortest month, uh, but Carter G. Woodson is the one that that instituted it in February, right? And so you know him being a black man, he wouldn't have chose. But the reason why February is uh, Black History Month is because he wanted. Remember, it was first Black History Week. And so the week that he has set in February were both uh, the birthday of Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. And so that's why he put the week in February. And then when it extended out to the month, it just stayed in February. Um, and so, you know, I always kind of blamed uh, the, the, the uh, oppressive class of being like, of course they chose February, but it actually wasn't them, something to correct. Uh, it actually wasn't them. It was Carter G. Woodson himself that chose February uh, for the week being both Frederick Douglass's and Abraham Lincoln's birthday, um, and then eventually extended out to the month. So that was actually his doing, uh, not uh, white Americans doing. Uh, but yeah, that's a little bit about Carter G. Woodson. Again, uh, he made some of the most influential books that in the, in the education world, he's the one who started Black history as far as uh, something to be celebrated and something to be uh, studied by all universities and schools. Um, and so he just did so much in his lifetime um, and he was really big on self-determination, on, uh, you know, uh, being an entrepreneur and not necessarily taking the lowest seat to society or wanting to assimilate into white culture, but rather showing that we have just as a, as far of a driving voice. I mean, we think about, you know, uh, I always talk about sports. So I think about the NFL and NBA. It's like, you know, we're so in a rush to get into these leagues with all these white owners, but we have the wealth right now to start our own leagues. You know, we have the wealth right now to go and, uh, create our own, but, you know, one day maybe we'll get there. You know, you've seen Deion Sanders go to HBCU and coach for a little while and talk about how dysfunctional it was. 
Uh, imagine if we send all of our talent, all our top talent to HBCUs. Imagine if we, you know, um, there's so many different things which we have the power to do at this point, um, but we just need the organization. And so he was really big on, uh, you know, one thing he also said was that we need, we're at a lack of leadership because extending from slavery, we still feel like our place is servitude. And so a lot of times we will serve over lead. And he was, and one of his points was that that is one of the things that's stopping us from being self-determining uh, in our society, in our, in our neighborhoods, is that we rather go and serve somebody else than lead and go through the, the hardships of creating our own. Uh, so, you know, he's so many things he said are just so salient, even to today, uh, the miseducation of the Negro, that's a book that actually changed my life. And even the book that I, you know, I one day aspire to write the miseducation of the Hebrew, um, you know, I took it straight from his title and I even went so far as to use his chapter titles and to try to kind of fit an outline into that, um, because he wrote, he wrote that book so well, uh, so well framed and so well delivered. Um, if you haven't got a chance to read that, if you're watching this, not having a chance to read that, that's one of those American classes that you have to read to understand, to better understand the Black condition here in America, uh, and really in the Pan-African diaspora, but especially here in America. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit about Dr. Carter G. Woodson, um, and that is my Black History Month presentation for today. Thank you for passing that along to me, Sister Easter. Thank you, Minister Griff. A lot of great information. I will get that book, Miseducation of the Negro. And uh, Carter Woodson is the father of Black history, went to Harvard, the second person to graduate in 1912. So I didn't know all these things. And uh, I like what you said. The Black history is American history. Black history is American history. And so um, that's wonderful. And like you said, they always make a big deal of, oh, like you said, the first coaches, oh, the first this. And it it, it just, it's, it's sad, but it is what it is. And we just have to elevate ourselves. Thank you so much. Anybody have any questions for Minister Griff before we move on to the next Black History Month, um, being educated on it? Or, or comments they want to add on about uh, Dr. Carter G. Woodson? I'll comment. Um, I enjoyed your talk. It was very informative, really for me and for Rabbi. It was a renewal and a reiteration because we learned these things in elementary school in the 60s before you guys got here. But <laughs> it was very good to hear about that and W.B. Dubois as well as long, I mean, as uh, well as other Black scholars and those that had done notable things in the United States and really I find a lot of times that for our race to succeed, we have to go across the water and play in other leagues, do other jobs. I met a young man at my job yesterday uh, who was born in Cambodia and because he was a war baby, but we have to go to other countries in order to excel many times. It's not always the norm, but they see our value more than people here in the United States. And even with the gentleman, um, George, I'm thinking uh, who the peanut guy. <laughs> uh, Washington Carver. Uh, yeah. And um, I mean, look at the work and the one who invented the um, cotton gin. Yeah. Look at our work. The one who invented the, uh, the street light, the traffic light. That's us. That's us. So I really enjoyed your information. Thank you so much.
Absolutely. And, and to that point, Sister Lisa, you know, it's just, it's so much that we've contributed. I mean, it's like, I hate to even say contribute, like we are American history. America wouldn't be what it was. Forget about, yeah, like slavery happened and, you know, we pretty much built this nation uh, for our infrastructure, but move past that. So many, I mean, the internet, Philip, uh, I forget his last name, Philip E. Uh, you go down to so many inventions that are just, just uh, prominent in today's society. And it was invented by folks that look like us, uh, folks that are Hebrews um, and that look just like us. So it's just, you know, and, 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 and this society is being attacked. You know, uh, Texas and Oklahoma were trying to pass bills and you saw this, uh, this college bill that's trying to be passed right now where they're trying to take out uh, a, a, a huge chunk of African-American history. Uh, so they're trying to reverse some of his work right now. So I think it's especially important in today's society that we talk about this. I think it's a much more salient topic today. Uh, some of his work's trying to be reversed. Um, but, you know, the one thing I do want to emphasize and leave everybody on is that it's good that we have Black History Month, but we shouldn't need it, right? And to fulfill Dr. Carter Woodson's original vision, we want to get to a point, and if you're an educator or if you're, you know, somebody like that, we want to get to a point where in our schools, every day is Black history, right? Because that's what it truly is. You can go to any part of American history and see Black history there. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be uh, this big celebration of a month. It should be tied throughout. Everyone should be learning this in every curriculum, white schools, Black schools, whatever it is. It should just be what it is. And so hopefully one day we'll get there. I would like to, like to make one more point. I'm sorry, quick, quick, quick. But I would recommend also along with your information that you guys, I sent this text, I think to uh, many of you, uh, Angela Davis and Jane uh, Elliott, uh, they talk about the same information. It's on YouTube, uh, but they did it here in Houston a couple of years ago. Thank you. I think that they're trying to they're they're accomplishing their mission by calling it Black History Month. It should be called African History. Mm -hmm. I think because that's another way of making us forget who we really are and where we came from. By calling it black, you can come be black anywhere. <laughs> but Africa, they took us from Africa. Mm -hmm. That's the key. They took us from Africa. When the war is over, the warriors go home. But we were we have been selected as a people that does not do not have a home. We don't call Africa our home. See, so so one of the ways is to blot it out, blot out our memory of who we are, where we came from. So that's something we have to really deal with as a people. And Robert, let me ask you this. This, this is a question, I guess, for everybody. But, you know, back in those days, they used the word Negro. You know, they didn't, you know, it was Negro History Week. Yeah. And then, of course, as you got throughout, further throughout society, it became more sensitive to say the word Negro. Um, you know, we look at the classifications of human beings, you have like the monoid, the caucasoid, and the negroid. Uh, what do you think, Rabbi? Is it is it make is, is that a better word to use than black and that because African American to me seems like almost disrespectful. You know, we say African American, it's like we had tribes, we had cultures, we had it's like relegating the entire continent of Africa down to one people, which is so far from the truth. It's such a diverse continent with so many peoples, so many languages, uh, but it's all, all kind of just jumbled up into one. And so it makes it so we have no idea, you know, uh, where we come from, et cetera. But just want to get you guys' take on that. What do y'all think, you know, uh, is Negro, should, should that have been the, you know, MLK, all of them use the word Negro. Um, how, how should we think about that as far as the black experience? Well, they took us from Negro land. Yeah, 
Yeah, it was literally named Negro Land. It was Negro Land. They took us from Negro Land. But we're African, right? Afrique, right? Um, you know, but actually Hebrew, Ivory. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of history that is coming out now. A lot of things that are that, that you know, we have we though, it's our responsibility. I hear, you know, I I know there's pushback and there's always gonna be pushback, but still we have the power. We have the power to control the narrative. So, you know, we're gonna be called different names, we're gonna call each other different names, but in the end, we're gonna be African, you know. Yeah, and, and that's that's according to the prophecy, right? That you'll be known yeah. as a byword, you'll be known as yeah. all these different things, you'll never yeah. kind of know going back to Deuteronomy. Yeah. But um yeah, th thank you for uh, saying that, Rabbi. Okay, and we are tribal people. We have mm -hmm. tribes and kingdoms. Mm -hmm. Right. Part of the parish is about us. You know, <laughs> you look at the. You know, we 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 had our own system of government that we we created. You know, coming out of bondage, mm -hmm. created a nation with laws and statutes. And I'm talking about in the wilderness, forty years in the wilderness. You know, so tribes. We were tribes. Twelve tribes. Right? And we had our own kingdoms set up. So we have to go back to who we are. We created this modern society. Without us, there is no modern society. Okay. So uh, anyway, I, I relinquish the mic for. Amen. Thank you for that. Very educational. Very educational. Uh, we're going to move on to the Daniels family, brother and sister Daniels, uh, for our Black History Month. Um, uh, we were looking for something because when, when you guys mentioned, um, started to talk about the, um, Hebrew history, <laughs> all of a sudden you mentioned something and it made me think of that KRS song where, but I, we were trying to verify if it was Genesis chapter 13, verse 10 or 16, verse 10. It goes in Genesis chapter 13, verse 10 or 16, verse 10 repeats the genealogy of Shem. Shem was a black man in Africa. If you repeat these facts, they can't laugh at you. And it's like, it just, after I had heard it and it goes through like the whole lineage, if you ever listen to that song. So it's a good song to like check out. It's old school. It's like from way back in the day, but it was talking about this like all the way, I think was it the 80s or the 90s, like with KRS-One, you know, that's old school kind of rap, like before rap became that other thing. It's me. <laughs> and so um, that's a little, I guess, not so history, but in the past <laughs> drop. Um, so <laughs> Whenever I get to this, um, to February, I, of course, all of the things, because I grew up in a um, school, shout out to PS 299 under Miss Saunders. <laughs> um, and I was surrounded by a bunch of Black teachers. I, I grew up in Bushwick and Bedford-Stuyvesant in New York and in Brooklyn. And it was like, every day felt like, the, um, Black history was being discussed because of the school that I grew up in. And, and she was, our principal was very intentional and our teachers were very intentional. And we didn't have all of these politics that are happening now where they're trying to remove everything. But um, the thing that I think really, because probably because of my love of music, it, it hit me was the, what they call the Negro spirituals but I now call them or think of them as the Hebrew spirituals, especially when you think of what a lot of the wording said. 
And so, um, of course, Mahalia Jackson was part of the influence and she is the, um, one of the um, songs that I am going to sing is from her. And um, it was, I'd seen it, I'd first been introduced to Mahalia Jackson on, I guess, a scale where I really became intense when I was probably a preteen in junior high school. And I met, shout out to Donna from French class. I met Donna and I had heard of her, of course, because we did, you know, from the time I was little, we were doing Black history every, and it was a big deal, like I said, in our school, you know, um, because of our principal and our teachers. But um, she just was like, nobody could touch Mahalia Jackson. And I was like, what is so, you know, and I was like, let me hear this Mahalia Jackson that you were talking about. And then because I was like, is it really that big a deal? And I knew Aretha Franklin, of course, then and, and other people, but Mahalia Jackson was her thing. And because of her, <laughs> Mahalia Jackson kind of became an influential person, I guess, in my life. Um, to give you a little history on her, I wasn't planning to, but when I realized that we you know, were going through history, I figured I should give her that justice also. So I'm just going to give you a... a a brief about her and it says Mahalia Jackson was born October 26, 1911, and of course passed in January 27, 1972. And it says she was an American gospel singer, but we know we think of her more as a Negro and an African American gospel singer, widely considered one of the most influential vocalists of the 20th century with career spanning 40 years. Jackson was integral to the development and spread of gospel blues in Black churches throughout the U.S. during a time when racial segregation was pervasive in American society. She met considerable and unexpected success in a recording career, selling an estimated 22 million records and performing in front of integrated and secular audiences in concert halls around the world. If you check out, I believe there's a movie they made on her life and it, it shows you like all the details, including like some of the things she faced backstage because, uh, and I, I thought about it and I was like, I always thought, you know, my first, I guess, visual with her was in Imitations of Life where I got to see her singing and not just listen to the records. And so that's the song that I'm going to, I guess, take a snippet out of um, and two other um what we would call, what I call Hebrew spirituals and others would call ne um, Negro spirituals. And, you know, Rabbi just gave the insight on where that came from. Um, also, the last one that I'm going to jump into is um, I just found out in reading that um, it was one that Sojourner Truth and others used in the, when they were escaping slavery. And we know that a lot of our Negro spirituals not only were about scripture and relating our lives to, to our book, even when we didn't remember that it was our book, but it was also coded with things. It was our way of, of passing on messages. And, 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 you know, so the last one is Wade in the Water. And, and I always loved the song, was just always feeling connected to the song, but I didn't even realize that that's what they were literally giving instructions of what to do and where to go, you know, to wade in the water and to, to, to keep the hounds off the, the scent. They, you know, there were things in there. And so I'm just going to get into it. I'm probably just going to do one intro musical and in, because I usually prefer to do these and do them acapella. As you probably can tell, I usually do acapella unless I have this one person who plays for me. But um, here it goes. <laughs> Pray for me, y'all. <laughs> Thank you. 
Take your time, beautiful. Soon I will be done with the trouble that this world is. The troubles of this world, the troubles of this world, soon I will be done with the troubles of this world. I'm going home to leave with my Lord. No more weeping there No more weeping there no more weeping now. I'm going home to leave my love. I just did a snippet of that one because, of course, it can go into um, certain verses and my mama didn't pass. <laughs> so I figured I would skip that part of it and just go to the end. And so, so I know, you know, we have our time constraints. So the next one was Go Down Moses. And I looked into this one, you know, sang it quite a few times, but I was looking into the um to see if I could figure out who wrote it but of course because it's with Negro spirituals a lot of times that's you have um we have a bit of trouble because it kind of just where of where or Hebrew spirituals where it derived from and and it came a lot of it out of the plantation if you look at some of the old documents and stuff and I used to do that when I was a teenager just go to the library and find the songs and the books and I found this one book that had every all of like a whole bunch of them and one and um uh, they would call it plantation songs even. And so a lot of it came out of the plantation and, and would not have therefore been documented who initially wrote it. But um, with this one, I believe that um, it became it became more public and and for the, the masses when Paul Robeson sang it. Um, and then further down the line, um, Louis Armstrong, he recorded it. Now, my version is probably a little bit of me and a little bit of them because Louis kind of sings it a little faster. Okay, thank you. So, um, testing, can you hear me clearly? Am I am I steady? Okay, yes, we can you. hear you. Just when you sing, if you just stay by that mic. 
We can hear you, but you yes. break up sometime if you move. Okay, one time I did press something by accident, so. Okay. Well, was, yeah. Mm -hmm. So go down, Moses, and I'm going to do this one a cappella just because sometimes the tempo of the um, those that play, and I'm used to singing it a cappella, and when that's probably how it started, given the history and where it came from, and then go into it. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land. Tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. When Israel was in Egypt land, let my people go. So says Yahuwah, go down to say, let my people go. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. So says the Lord, go down, Moses, let my people go. Way down in Egypt to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Go down, Moses, Way down in Egypt land, tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. Thus spoke the Lord, Moses said, let my people go. If not, I'll smite your firstborn dead. Let my people go. Go down, Moses. Way down in Egypt land. Hello, Pharaoh. To let my people go. Once again, of course, I went in and out of that song. I'm sure that those of you who know it and have known it for a long time <laughs> um, know the all of the words and, and I came in and out of it. But if you listen to the whole story, the story goes into the story. Of, of the conversation, you know, not just the, the freedom of, of us from Egypt, but the conversation that was had with, between Moses and the Most High. So I just wanted to throw that in. And the last one is wait in the water. Wait in the water, wait. The water. 
children wait in the water. God's gonna trouble the water. Wait in the water. Wait in the water. Children wait in the water. Yah's gonna trouble the water. Wait in the water. Wait in the water, children. Wait in the water. Yah's gonna trouble the water. See those children dressed in white. Yah's gonna trouble the water. It looking like those Israelites. Yah's gonna trouble the water. Wait in the water. Wait in the water, children, wait in the water. Yah's gonna trouble the water. See that band all dressed in red. Yah's gonna trouble the water. Look like a band that Moses laid. Yah's gonna trouble the water. Wait in the water. Wait in the water, children, wait in the water. Yah's gonna trouble the water. Wait in the water. Wait in the water, children, wait in the water. Yah's gonna trouble the water. Said I stepped in the water, the water was cold. Yah's gonna trouble the water. It chilled my body, but not my soul. Yah's gonna trouble the water. In the water, children, wait in the water. Yah's gonna trouble the water. Oh, Yah's gonna trouble the water. Yah's gonna trouble the water. Oh, Yah's gonna trouble the water. Amen. And that's all she's singing. <laughs> Amen. Now over to the next person. Amen. Thank you so much for those beautiful spirituals. When I was listening, I was thinking about how that that must have been healing for their soul because they'd be out in those fields in those long days and it was brutal and that heat and those songs just kept them. It just it, it kept them uh, alive. 
it kept them for hope and it just it kept them as a family and so thank you that was Mahalia Jackson she uh she sang her songs for our Black History Month we thank you so much the and, day uh, sisters, if you don't mind me if you don't mind me joining in mm -hmm. um, well, one thing that I always say is that um the the Hebrew American, uh, Negro American uh, worship experience, going back to um, what you just saying, Sister Daniels, and just that whole expression. I mean, it has to be the most authentic uh, worship experience in the world because it comes from the same suffering that the Israelites underwent. Like a lot of these songs, you hear the groans and you hear the, you know, different uh, just gut guttural sounds that are being made. And it's things that kept us at a time through slavery and the same conditions that the Israelites were going through. Um, and so, you know, and I think we all know uh, that the spirit just flows through this music. Um, but it's just it's just so authentic to the what the Israelites um, experience was that, I mean, I don't care who you are, or what culture you're from, when you go and you hear you know, gospel, but even deeper than that, when you hear these Negro spirituals, I mean, it does something to you internally to your soul because it's coming from the soul. Um, and so that's something that I always kind of felt. Um, but as we've gone throughout, you know, my progression and learning more and more about who we are, I think it's been confirmed more and more that this is the most uh, authentic worship experience when it comes to worshiping in spirit and in truth. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I was I, one thing I forgot to to mention about Mahalia Jackson was that she refused to, and and I believe that they said it was her father who told her not to sing any secular music, and so she only did gospel, only did gospel, and and made it go worldwide. And then and that was that affected me when I was young because I grew up Christian, and you know, and being having that example was a cool thing for me. But the other thing was when I started to sing these um spirituals it's funny it, it my voice would change and there would be a tremor in my voice and tears in my eyes that would just come out it's like it's not a type of song that I could just sing and be cute <laughs> it's not if you ever my mom one time took a picture and oh it looked messy in my face <laughs> it's just there's there's something else that happens when singing those songs mm -hmm. it also says in the scripture I don't recall the verse or the book or the chapter, but those that had our people in slavery would tell them, sing us one of those songs that y'all like to sing. Mm. And so that's written in scripture. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, maybe one day I'll check it out and see where it's found and then give them that information. Yes. Time. Yes. We've also read it. I, I, thanks for pointing that out. I didn't mention it, but it was a good point. Yeah. Because I found that interesting when um, we were listening to something and they, they, Brought that up to that same scripture. If I find it, Chris, I'll let you know. Thanks yeah. to quote Lisa. That How was can I sing the Lord's song in a strange land? How can I sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Don't take me back to Bob Marley, Rabbi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My mom used to sing that yeah. to us all the time when we were growing up and be like, it's in the Bible. And she was showing yeah, it. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But how can mm. we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Mm. And then they got a new renditionization of it. How can I sing when I'm in a strange land? You know, so you know that that's a you know I, I as a child I heard Mahalia Jackson live. Yeah, mother I went to see her live. Yeah. You know, when Mahalia's on, everybody gets quiet. 
there's a lot of history, you know. There's someone with a hand up. Prince yeah, I was Bright. about to say that. Uh, welcome to the room, uh, Prince Bright. You got your hand up. Where uh, the subject is Black History Month. If you can uh, go ahead and, and say a piece, whatever you like to say. Oh, he left. No, he didn't. Yeah. He didn't leave. I just took his hand down. Prince Bright, are you able oh, okay. to get your audio going? Unmute yourself and speak. I, I don't think, know if he can I hear. think he was just waving. I oh, think, okay. Okay. I think, okay. Okay. So, uh, uh, so we thank so, everybody uh, for quick. coming in. Anybody who uh would like to come on as Prince Bright did, just send your email address and share. Go ahead, Minister Griff. Yeah, just back to Sister Daniels real quick. Um, I'm glad you sang those Wade in the Water lyrics. Uh, you know, we grew up with this stuff in the church, uh, but a lot of times we we omit, you know, we get a little um more uh, off the top with it. We omit some of the lyrics. I never knew the how the full lyrics to that song until uh, my baby was born and someone gave me a Negro Spirituals um, hymn book. And I saw the lyrics and I'm like, my God, here it is right here. They tell us the Israelites in the song, you know, they tell us right here, who's that band all, you know, Lita looks like, you know, it's just, they, they're telling us right there in the songs, but so many times we cut off the verses or we don't sing the full thing through. Uh, when the Saints Go Marching In is another song that I saw, and I'm like, here it is right here. It was encoded. It was being passed down to us. We, we, I mean, it's clear as day, you know, but yet somehow it got lost. And to that point, Sister Dale, you said that this is not a song you sing with like a, a smile and all that on. Uh, one, one video that changed my life is when I saw uh, Billie Holiday sing Strange Fruit. When I saw her sing Strange Fruit and you see the look on her face and they pan the camera she's singing to and it's just a white audience in the South and she's singing this song, you know, and it's just like, man, that's powerful. Watching her sing that song and watching her, um, you know, not even care the repercussions of what was going to come out of her singing these songs in these spaces. It didn't matter. It was just like, so deep to watch that it's so so moving to watch that and so you know when you said you know uh my mom recorded me and it wasn't pretty that just reminded me of seeing billy holiday singing that and she was singing it which is you could tell it was her whole soul going into it my um, sister makes me sing that one a lot for they, they, sing it to the white folk they didn't get it anyway it went over their head they didn't understand <laughs> but, but they, they were because <laughs> they tried to arrest her and stop her from singing it and doing all they the thought she was talking about apples or something <laughs> 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 Are we that, being was, that was deep but uh yes yeah, Davis, thank you for 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 bringing for uh bringing this to the to the forefront today that was just that was very enlightening and you know listen to your voice always is a blessing so just want to say thank you nina simone also sang that song yes she did yes she did yep. and remember yeah. this also in the earlier days when they were first enslaved right mm -hmm. they were forbidden to learn to read so mm -hmm. the songs they saying mm -hmm. had to come from their heart from what yeah. they remembered mm -hmm. and what they so you know that uh in itself is powerful but it, those were codes used right. to escape and when right. we we're going to have an uprising mm -hmm. we had code languages so and and that goes all the way back to the motherland right all the way back so we have to remember who we are where we came from and with the desire to see our home, you know, excel and 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 we need to enrich our own people. We can't. We're here in a strange land, 
We are here in the land of our captors. We have a home to go to and the doors are open and are opening. But we have been so conditioned to want to be the other people, you know, like the other people. But we forget that they stole what they have from us, the knowledge they got from us. Exactly. If you go back, you know, uh, I'm going to stop right here because I'm getting, you know, because there's so much that they stole from us, from Mali and, 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 and Timbuktu. You know, most of us came over here. The most we, we were, uh, well, I said a lot of us that came were um, Muslim. Mm -hmm. Christianity came with enslaved, but Muslim, even though we were enslaved by Muslim, it was a different type of slave. It was more like, you know, we could rise up and be, a, you know, and, and rise up in, amongst the Muslims. If you were enslaved, you could rise up in stature and you were respected. So it's a whole different thing, you know, for the most part than this channel that, that we were placed into uh, by the Europeans who were, by the way, uh, jealous and afraid of us as a people, as an African people, African Israel people, right? They know who we are. Yeah. They know, and and, and now, because we were dead, because we've got, we, when you forget who you are, where you come from, you're dead. So when it says, can these dry bones live? Guess what? These dry bones are resurrected. Now we are part of the first resurrection. We're coming back to know who we are. We're coming back to life. And we're beginning to love ourselves and to love where we come from, right? So there is a generation and there have been generations that we're taught to hate ourselves. But those days are, are, are fast leaving quickly. And that's why DeSantos out of Georgia, out of Florida, where is that, that sissy over there in Florida? And yeah, I call him a sissy. And, you know, he's fighting against it. I understand some of the things they have because they have this culture of these teachers, all the them letters in there. You know, that's not a part of our culture, but they want to, you know, they want to tie it to us all the time, but it's not who we are. That's what they want us to be in order to, to pollute our holiness. We've always been a spiritual people, not necessarily a religious people, but a spiritual people believing in the powers of the creation and the creator. They want to steal all that from us. They want to give us a God that, that they can see. Put a God before us that, you know, to give us an image. But we've always been a holy people. We come from a holy stock. We are an, an educated, a well-educated people. You know, and thinking about Timbuktu and in that area, Songhai dynasties and, you know, all of these people where people would travel all over the world to come over to where West Africa to learn, and our and our libraries were in different languages. We had medicine and science and mathematics. You go into Timbuktu in the area, and and they would, you know, dressed well dressed and well, you know, just they, you you could compare the dynasties to uh, a Paris or Chicago or anything like that in those days when they were still living in caves and killing each other and starving. We were thriving on the continent of Africa on the interior of Africa and the walled city, they came and destroyed the thing because they were trying to destroy who we are. This is black history, what we're seeing today. We're, we're seeing the young people taking over. We're seeing the continent of Africa waking up. They talk about the sleeping giant being China. No, Africa is the sleeping giant. Our, my grandparents told us that it's gonna be the black people that take and control and change the world. We are seeing the beginnings of that now. They don't want you to teach black history. They can't stop us from teaching black history. 
It's a part of our everyday life. Sure, we, we've got a month that is set aside to focus on, but you know, Black history, African history is every day. If we if we just turn our hearts inside to ourselves. Can do I can I can I show you something like right, let me show you something here? If I can. If I can, if I'm able to show you. This is um from before the Mayflower, Lerone Bennett. It says the unit the University of Sankor and other intellectual centers in Timbuktu had large and valuable collections of manuscripts in several languages. And scholars came from faraway places to check their, check their Greek and Latin manuscripts. Because why? That's what a seed of knowledge is, right? That's what knowledge is. The seeds scattered here put, put down uh, deep roots. Hundreds of years later, you know, the people coming in, right? Uh, met an old blind man in Sudan. You know, all, and then I'm gonna go down. Let me go down a little bit. It says, How did the people of Timbuktu amuse themselves? It says, If the writers of Songhe can be believed, Timbuktu was Paris, Chicago, and New York. I just kind of paraphrased that for you earlier, blended into an African setting. It says, Shocked Songhe's historians and said, said, Most of the people amuse themselves with parties and love and the pleasures of the cup. Music was a was the rage, uh, and midnight levels are were common. Rebels were common. Dress of the women was extravagantly luxurious, and men and women were found fond of jewels. And the women dressed their hair with bands of gold. Okay, and it talks about the life on the continent of Africa. But yet they say when they got there, they were what? When you what we hear is they were savages. That we were savages. Their lies, all the lies that are told. But what they really saw, they wanted to destroy it. You see, the most civilized peoples, kingdoms, and, and tribes were on the continent of Africa. That's who we are. They don't want you to, that's why they say they don't want to teach critical, you know, or the critical race theory. And they don't want us to go back to, because eventually we're going to get back to the beginning, who we were before we got to the shores of the, of the world well, we we elevated the world and the world has become enriched on, on the back of African people. You go into Africa, one, you go into, if I go into, to, we go into uh, Ghana, we're going to go into, uh, well, I just say in Ghana, and you can go and speak, people speak more than one language, plus they speak English and French and, and you will find these different languages. What? Can, how can you be a savage and an unlearned person you speak several languages? How can you? And you knew about metallurgy. Our ancestors in the country of Africa knew about metallurgy, knew all this stuff. So they had to get our, our power in there, and that's why they're so afraid. Let me show you something else here. Let me just switch over. The power, look at this. This is the same book before the Mayflower, Lerone Bennett. It says, Black Power in the Old South. I just want y'all to get a little bit of this. This is why they don't want you to teach it to the children. It says, okay, let me see, see this. Let me go down here. It says, in Mississippi, South Carolina, and Louisiana, Black lieutenant governors were sitting on the right hand of power. Listen at this. This is during the Reconstruction period, just out of slavery. They had just come out of slavery. And look what I said. In Mississippi, you know, Strange Fruit, Strange Fruit, the song, Strange Fruit, South Carolina and Louisiana. 
the thicket of, of chattel slavery was there. But right after the, this is right after the Civil War, when we were set free, our, our fathers were set free. It says black lieutenant governors were sitting on the right hand of power. This is right out of slavery. These are people that were, were, were denied the right to read, but they're still, right after the Civil War, they're sitting in the seats of power. They're running the country. It said the, a black was Secretary of State in Florida. How many do we have today? A black was on the state Supreme Court in South Carolina. We're talking about a, a clan talking about getting the first black woman. We already had them there. We already were there, right out of slavery. What kind of a power, what kind of a people could rise from being nothing, from being chattel to sitting and ruling in the country in such a short time? Within two years after coming out of slavery, they're running the country. Listen at that. And these and other southern states, blacks were superintendents of education. We were running the education. It said state treasurers and adjun uh, adjutant generals, solicitors, judges, and, and, and major major generals of militia. Uh, and then it goes on. It says, uh, it says um, Robert H. Wood was a mayor of Natchez, Mississippi, and Norris Wright uh, was running for mayor in, of Galveston, Texas. Seven blacks were sitting in the House of Representatives. Seven blacks sitting in the House of Representatives. I, you can count that on one hand right today. But this was right. What kind of people can, can you, do you know what stock you come from? The reason why we were able to do that is because before we left the continent of Africa, we were already doing these things. Continent of Africa was, oh my goodness. If we could get them Europeans out of our way, get them devils out of our way, we can move and rise. We will run the world. I know this is going out over the thing, and I know this is going to scare some folks, but we can run the world if we will unite as one people. We got to be one people. We got to stop hating ourselves. It says, listen, not watch this. Um, it says, Okay, I just got to talk about that. I said, nor was this all. Nor was this all. Blacks and whites were going to school together. Listen at this. Blacks and whites going to school together right after the war. He said, they said they're riding on streetcars together, cohabitating. Oh, you know, that's not good. <laughs> and and in, in and out of wedlock. We were, we were like one society. This is during the Reconstruction period. This is before Rose Rule, by the way. This is before the Red Summer of 1921. They could not stand this. This is in the South. They could not stand to see this. The Northerners couldn't stand to see this, by the way. The Democrats, right? This is when we were Republicans and we were running everything. But you know that there was a switch in the political system, right? We know that we switched over from Republican to, to Democrat because, it's, you know, you know, so many. That's, another, that's a lesson for another time. But the same ones that are running the Republican Party now are not the same people that are running in our day. We ran it in our day. Says an interracial board was running the University of South Carolina. Interracial board. We were on the boards and colleges in South Carolina. You go to South Carolina now, you see how many of us run anything there. He says. He says. Uh, uh, say there was a black uh, professor, Richard T. Greener, was teaching white and black youth metaphysics and not this like this. Right out of slavery, he's teaching metaphysics. Wait, 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 this is right after the Civil War. 
He's teaching white folks and black folks metaphysics and logic. What kind of man is this? You talking about, you know, they, they write this thing about Superman, how he came out of the skies and, and with this, you know, we are the Superman and the Superwomen. That, that's, that, that movie is about us, but they need to give a kryptonite. What is our kryptonite? The kryptonite is us being indoctrinated into their system and way of learning and indoctrinating us to think that we are less than who we really are. We, are, we, are, we have become something less than what we were born to be. We were created in the image of the creator of the whole universe. And yet we have forgotten who we are. He said, these things were happening on higher levels. What of the, the masses? How is it with them? Now think about the other, now on the other side, it said they were struggling as they had always struggled with the stubborn and uh, recalcitrant earth. But now that there was hope, see, even when those that were still struggling, there was hope. He said, never before, never since had there been such so much hope. Black mothers knew that their, that her boy could become governor. Listen at that. She knew it. She knew it. He said that the evidence of things seen, the evidence of things heard, heard fired millions of hearts. Black mothers walked 10 to 15 and 20 miles to put their children in school. They sacrificed and stinted. They, they bowed down and worshiped the miraculous ABCs from, from whom so many blessings flow. The sky or, or it says the sky or at the very least, the mountaintop was the limit. There was no limit. We knew even though the masses were struggling, they still knew there was a glimmer. By the way, Barack Obama was not the first black uh, president. That was one back during Washington's time. He was president for a short while. By the way, a little history thing. You can find that. You can check that out. Got that from Joe Madison's show. Say, okay, it says, uh, let's say this. Had not Blanche Bruce been suggested as a possible vice presidential candidate? Listen, we talked about Kamala Harris. Back in the Reconstruction time, we already had somebody going to be a, a nomination for Vice president, which is the next step from what being the president. Okay. Now watch this. Um, it says, "Black mothers bending over washtubs could hope. Black boys in cotton fields could dream. The millennium had come. Of of course, had not hadn't come. Of course, but there were some who believed it was around the next turning. Okay, talking about a time that we're supposed to be experiencing now, and we're and we're seeing that there's pushback." But they cannot stop us. We already know. It says, the jig is up. Cat's out of the bag. The genie's out of the bottle. You can't put us back in now. He says, a man in this age went to mail letter, to mail a letter, and the postmaster was black. A man committed a crime and in some counties was arrested by a black policeman, prosecuted by a black solicitor weighed by a black and white jury and sentenced by a black judge. What are they saying? We had positions of power, okay? We had power. It said it was enough to drive some men mad. Now you're talking about the Democrats on, on the Northern. It was enough to drive some men mad. This is what we're saying in DeSantos, the, the governor of, of, of Florida. This is what we're seeing in him. 
exactly what it's writing here. It said it was enough to drive some men mad. It's driving him mad. It drove Trump mad. It drives uh, Green mad. That one with the, all them them folks that, that you see crying about, you know, Black History. This is their this is their thought processes right here. It said it was enough to warp some men's judgment. Come, it says, come with James S. Pike, a hostile northern reporter, into the South into the South Carolina House of Representatives, the first Western assembly of its kind with a black majority. Listen at this. House of Representatives with a black majority. The speaker, uh, Pike reports, is black. The clerk is black. The doorkeepers are black. The little pages are black. The chairman of the Ways and Means is black. And the chaplain is coal black. These are brothers. These are come from the continent. These are running the South. They couldn't stand it. This is where they came up with shortly after black codes. And they started doing anything to, to, to dilute the vote. And, and, and so it, we find ourselves where we are today. You see, the history of the United States needs to be told. And it's told from an African perspective with documentation to prove that it is so. They don't want, they don't want to know, they don't want the world, they don't want, well, basically, they don't want us to know who we are and the power that we have as a people. And this is why we have to stop fighting each other, stop airing our dirty laundry you know, what we, what goes on in the house stays in the house. When we go out, we go out as a united front. We are one people. We're speaking with one voice. And for those who choose to chose to go to the other side, let them go over there and forget about them. Because eventually they're going to cry back and come back home and cry because they're going to find out what they really think about them once they've used up all of their power and their resources. But we are one people. Let us use this little Black History Month, as they call it, as we call it, as a catalyst to, to review who we are, whose we are. I was blessed coming up when I did in the city that I grew up in, Gary, Indiana, where we had power. We, we, we know back in the day in the 60s, Black power, say it loud, I'm Black and I'm proud, you know. What's going on, Marvin Gaye? And we had these things. And my principal, well, was a Tuskegee Airman. My principal, and I was in high school, was a Tuskegee Airman. His name was Quentin P. Smith. Okay, Quentin P. Smith. He was a, during World War II, right? He was my principal. So that was his, that's Black history. You see, we live Black history. We see that we saw people like William Marshall come to the town, and and I've said this before. So, so we are a people that must remember where we came from, must remember who we are. We must. These are things that we. It should be as it says in the scripture. These things should be fronted before our eyes and bound in our hands as a sign that we are the children of the Most High. We come from royal stock. You know, they talk about this Aryan nation and talk about this. No, no, we come from royal stock. We were created in the image of the Most High God. Avinu Shabbat Shamayim. He created us to rule this world. 
We are the ones that are concerned about the environment. We are the ones concerned, concerned about the, the sick and the poor and the needy. It is us who look after the poor and the needy. And during, during this time when it talks about, and I just got to talk about the positions that we had in society, I didn't read all of it. You should get that book before the Mayflower, Lerone Bennett. And you and you see in there where when we had school systems, public school systems going, and we were taking care of the poor, the widow, and the orphan because that's who we are. That's who the Republican Party used to be, but it's no longer that way. It is now the Democratic Party that is that way. Unfortunately, we've been, you know, we've been infiltrated, been infiltrated. You see, we knew the scripture said, "Take care of your widows and your orphans and your poor." He said they're going to be with you always, meaning. We have a responsibility for as long as we live on this rock to take care of the poor, the widows, and the orphans. We are to, to rule in justice. That's who we are. That's what we're made of. It's natural for us. It's in our, it's encoded in our DNA. We come from our Father that created all things. He is merciful and He is just. It is a part of our makeup. It is a violence and murder is not who we are. It's, not, it's what the world wants us to be, that a, a segment of the world wants us to be or, to, or, or portrayed as, wants us to be betrayed as. That is not true. It's a lie from the other side. We are tremendous and a powerful people. We remember though of those that were enslaved, those that survived were the strongest of the strongest. And we've just proven it by some of the things that we read about how we excelled in democracy with judges and lawyers and, and solicitors and, and how we rose up in the educational system. We were running things. Doing, that's why they talk about reconstruction and they cut it off. They don't want to get into the depths of reconstruction. But we were running this country and it was a much better place. Had we continued to run this country, there's no, you know, we wouldn't have people going in the, in the school shooting up people and and bombing children in churches. We wouldn't have that if we were running the country. Because we are children of the Most High. And, and it's not a part of our DNA. We're, we're not savages. Savages came and overtook the land of, 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 of Canaan land. Overtook Canaan land. Savages took, overtook Canaan land because we sinned. We sinned. And so savages took over. And then savages flipped the switch. You see? So we have to take back what's ours. Take back who we are, our identity, our heritage, and our culture. We have to get back to our languages of who we are. Not everybody's going to do it, but that doesn't mean we're different people. It means that we're the same people. We just have different ways of going about it. Remember the four different groups that there are of us. But each and every group is going to make it in. See? But we, all, we have to say we are all one people. Let us stand as one people. This Black history, this year, let it be a catalyst for us to go forward as one people, controlling our own narrative. Okay, I'll stop right there. You know, you know, Rabbi. One of the um, I read a book probably about three years ago. I had, you know, and I feel it's almost like shameful that I didn't know parts of these histories, but, you know, coming up in Pennsylvania, uh, only really ever having white educators, even moving to Texas to Houston, still we only had white educators. 
Um, but what you said about the reconstruction period and how much power we had, we talk about like progress and how, oh, we got the first this and first that. Really what we're doing is catching back up to where we were because out of the reconstruction period, I mean, the amount of power we had in the South, over 2,000 elected officials on the on the local, state, and federal level. Uh, I mean, it was insane how we were taking over. And of course, this is what this is where white supremacy rose. This is where the KKK, they sent the KKK out. This is where this all comes from because they said they can't have this. This can't happen. They can't have this kind of power. And so they came down to crush that power. And, you know, it's a great conspiracy that happened down there with us. But I mean, there was so much power. We had so much power in those uh, in those quote unquote slave states uh, after we got the right to vote and everything else. Uh, I mean, you know, we've never gotten to that height again as far as how many elected officials we had at one time and how it was the mayor, the governor, the like you said, the I mean, literally everywhere you look, it was there. Um, how come we don't hear about that in American? How come that's not in every American history textbook? How come that's not taught to white kids and black kids and Hispanic kids? Why is that not just as American as George Washington? You know, it's just unbelievable. And that's what, you know, Carl Woodson was talking about. It's unbelievable when we get to see how none of this stuff is being taught to us. How I mean, he had one comment. He said, when you control the mind, you don't have to worry about the actions because they're trained to go to the back door. Right. If there's no back door, they will cut a back door uh to do what they're trained to do right that's how deep the indoctrination is and how we're not getting any of this uh you know on a massive level if you were blessed to be you know under black educators at some point you, you probably got it or you might have got it but it's crazy like this should this shouldn't be just a one-off or i was fortunate enough type of situation this should be we all learn this and this is on the SAT exam and this is on the, uh, you know, the whatever exam you need to pass that grade level, this should all be there. And so, you know, thank you for bringing that rabbi. That that, that changed me. I, I was in disbelief at how I didn't know so much. I'm like, we had that much power. There was that much given that we had taken after uh, the, in the reconstruction period. I never learned this. What was I learning during reconstruction? You know, it, it, it was amazing. It was amazing. Thank you for, for uh, bringing that back up, rabbi. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I didn't even um, realize it was abnormal until um, until I started to go into the um, schools on the higher level. Rabbi, we can't hear you. Are you trying to say something? Can can you guys hear me? I can hear you. Okay. Okay. Now I can. Hear you. It looked like you were trying to speak. Okay. But yeah, I just I it, it shouldn't be that way, and and it's almost like I was living in La La Land for a good while. <laughs> Until, um, you know, thinking everyone was getting that same type of education. And, you know, it's when I started to go into the upper level schools and the gifted schools and all of that and started to realize this was not how things were done. That's when I realized it wasn't done that way everywhere. But yeah. yeah. And how good a job our principal and our teachers had done too. Yeah. 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 yeah I think many in many instances, integration hurt us really did hurt us because when we had African teachers or black teachers or Negro teachers, they cared about us and they made sure that we learned, you know, one of the, one of the big things they used was this, uh, what do they call it? This, this test they give you to check your intelligence and they give us the, the, the IQ, white, the aptitude, IQ, IQ. Yes. 
and they would give us stuff that came out of White House, mm -hmm. the white people's house, white community, and test us on that. We, we were, you know, of course you're gonna score low if you didn't grow up in a white community in a white, you know. I didn't know what a divan was. What was that? It was a couch or whatever, you know. Tell me, talk to us in plain language and we can give you the answers. But they use these things against us. And we have a different way of learning, you know. And 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 Rabbi, that's just that's just been continued to this day. The SAT is the same thing. Uh, I do talk to a lot of folks who understand the SAT. I mean, it's a it's a racially charged test because of the fact of the language that's being used, etc. And that's the gatekeeper for higher education. Um, and so in the same way, the SAT has just continued that on uh, until today. You know, I really didn't realize a lot of things until I went into the military. And the, way, the, the teaching methods in the military were different than that I had been exposed to in the, because I went to, a, I was bused to school and I went to school with in the Jews and the Greeks and the, you know, these folks like this. And so they had different methods of teaching. And I, I did well, you know, I did well. I didn't take any books home. I wouldn't, I didn't, because I didn't need to. I Whatever he had in class, I remember it. I didn't realize the type of memory that I had at that time until I went to the military. And I went into, you know, we, we the special training stuff where we couldn't take notes. We had to remember everything. And I had a 100% retention on everything that I learned in the school and uh, in the military school. And and so I didn't realize that, you know, when I started, they'd have me competing against other units and I would score very well and I'd be the, I'd win. I didn't realize it. And these were white folks I was competing against and beating them all the time. So I, realized, I said, we're smarter than they are. Or we're just as smart. All we need to do is have the information presented to us in a way that we can remember it. So, you know, the society has been designed uh, at our peril. But on the good thing is that many of us uh, adapted to that training method, teaching method, and excelled. As a people, we still excel, even though they change rules. We still excel. That's the that's the beauty of it. No matter how many times they change or move the goalposts, we break the goalposts down and go beyond it. First, one of us will say, "Okay, this is how they do it," and then we and move forward. From then on, it's like it just spreads and we take over. So we need to return to our roots, as as your brother. We need to return, you know, and and remember who we are. Um, you know, because we are more than we have been told we are. And, you know, and like I said, tomorrow we have this Super Bowl going on with these two brothers. You know, we've had, we could have had this years ago. As a matter of fact, we're not careful. <laughs> the future doesn't look too bright for them. You know, because we will rule, we'll rule. And now we're starting to, if we can get more coaches and, and more managers and owners, you know, it's up to us, really. And we can and that, do it. That's the thing, Rabbi. As soon as you let us in the door, we kick it down and we take it over. Like it's like over, you said, yeah. this should have been too black to start the NFL, should have been two black quarterbacks. But we were kept out of that position for so long. Said, oh, you're an athlete. You're better suited to be a receiver or a running back. We've yeah. been had the leadership qualities. We've been had the intelligence. We've been had all the intangibles. It was literally just... Somebody in power, 
being in the, having that having that oppressor mindset, being like, no, a black man can't be the leader of the team, right? I right. mean, you see how much success you look in the NBA; these black coaches are having. You let <laughs> them in, and immediately, you know, mm-hmm. players are going to play more for that black coach. Uh, they know how to relate better. I mean, all the like it should have been happened, but here we are in 2023, saying, "Look at these two black quarterbacks. Let's yeah. celebrate this, man. Let's celebrate it all we want to. Yeah, cool, they there, but." It's long overdue. Yeah. You know, it's long overdue. You know, this is the what happens is those other people know history. Mm-hmm. And so just thinking about the reconstruction of how we did then, they understand that once we get our foot in the door, it's over. Right? Like you said, brother, once we get in, once we learn, you know, all it takes is one or two to get in. It's over. Mm-hmm. You know, when we remember Mary Lou Ritten and all these darlings of the Olympics, you know, gymnastics team. And then we got the goat mm-hmm. she comes in and they don't even talk about it that much. With all the things that she's accomplished, they don't talk about her that much. You don't even see her that much. But if she was that other girl, that, that uh, if that other Mary Lou Ritten or that other one that they had on there that was that she beat out to get on the on the team, if they had done half of what she's done, you couldn't turn the TV on or any sports thing, you couldn't. You, you know, you could not turn it on without seeing them. Because, you know, and that's just in the and one facet of 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 the American um experience or experiment. We uh we just have to love ourselves. Yeah. We have to love I was thinking about the point where you were talking about um learning differently and then still having to adjust to suit you know, what what the, yeah. the standard that they've created. And I was thinking of my childhood and even when they would say, these are the rules, even in terms of speaking English, writing English. And there were things that didn't make sense because we know that English is an amalgam of other languages. Yeah. It's not just one language in English. And so I go, but how comes, and I always give the example of Houston versus Houston. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> go, yeah. But you just told me this is the rule. This doesn't make sense. Right. <laughs> you know. And there were things, a lot of things like that. And they would go, yeah, you know, this is just the rule, just follow. And I go, but if the rule doesn't make sense, why are we following it? <laughs> you, <laughs> you know, know what? Child, <laughs> you, you know what? <laughs> they do that to Hebrew. Mm-hmm. They do it mm-hmm. at the Hebrew because if you look at the wa or the vowel, mm-hmm. it's a mm-hmm. ooh in some places, an o in some places. It's a you know mm-hmm. they. I said, what's the rule on that? Mm-hmm. There's no rule. Yeah. There and there, <laughs> here and here, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. C and C. What, what, what's up? You know, a lot of confusion. Yeah, the rule is. There is no rule. Yes. That's the rule. There is no rule. It's whatever I want it to be or yes. whatever I say it is. You know? Exactly. And then you just have to learn and memorize these complexities. Yes. <laughs> you know, and when I work in uh, corporate America, you know, they give us all these rules. You got to you got to meet these different standards before you can get promoted. And then the next thing you know, white guy walk in on the street, haven't done anything, haven't met any requirement. They promote him. Well, why'd you promote him? Well, you know, well, why'd you promote him? Well, and then you know, they get mad at me because I keep asking, why'd you promote him? He doesn't he doesn't meet the qualifications. Why'd you promote him? And so I was a bad actor, by the way, y'all. Mm-hmm. I had a bad attitude. They told us, you know, we want you to be like entrepreneurs in your department and run the department. Then when you start doing it, they say, well, you, you, you take, you're taking it too serious. What do you mean? You just told me you wanted me to act like it's mine. 
Now you go come. So the rules are whatever they say they are. And if you know, so it's a game that they've got us in, you know. And and uh, well, people like with my thoughts, the way that I was raised, you know, hey, it's going to be one way. You got to, you, you know, you, you, I don't bow. You know, I, I'm going to question it. You know, and and you know, so I, I have a problem. You know, I'm, I guess I rebel against authority too much. <laughs> you know, uh, and and that's what happened to a lot of our our ancestors. They rebelled against the status quo and rebelled against authority, and they cut their foot off, cut their hand off, beat them to their back was raw. You know, pulled teeth, broke fingers and hands, cut out, knocked out eyes, and because they were refused, they refused to bow. You know, so. Uh, we got some questions here. Okay, we thank everyone. You all able to hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, Black History Month, we thank everyone for tuning in. Our um, parish off of next week is Exodus 21 through 24 up to the 18th verse. Exodus 21 through 24, up to the 18th verse. We thank everyone um, for pouring out their souls. We thank everyone for educating us on our Black History Month. I don't have a piece. My piece for Black History Month is you are who you're waiting for. You are who you're waiting mm -hmm. for to create, uh, to explore, to invent. You are who you're waiting for. Now we have no excuse. Mm -hmm. We know everything that's going on. You are who you're waiting for, okay? Um, if we can go ahead and have the closing prayer. Yahweh bless you and may he keep you. May Yahweh cause his face to shine upon you. And be gracious toward you. And may Yahweh lift up his countenance toward you. And may he give you peace. Amen. We thank you all for tuning in. We thank you for another opportunity. We will see you every Saturday. We love you. Uh, share our episode. Uh, send me your email address. Shalom.
שלום, שלום. שלום.